Hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci. And welcome to my podcast, which we're calling TMI, The Motivation Inside. I hope this will be one fun and productive listening ride for all of you. And for those of you who don't know me, I am the founder of Skybridge Capital, a global investment firm. The reason that we're doing TMI is not to tell you about how successful we are here at Skybridge, but to share with you the many faces of success and wealth, because I keep saying it, it ain't all that pretty. I want to let you in on how I got here, but it's also important to understand that we all have greatness inside of us and we can all achieve wonderful success. Uh, It would be terrific if we could help you tap into that greatness. Uh, And I would just say this to you, that the road is never simple. It curves, there are hills, there are numerous intersections, and I'm not the typical Wall Street guy. I, I don't live here in New York City. I'm still living about two miles from my parents out on Long Island. I tell you this because maybe you can relate to me and understand my strategies on the road to success and see some of the gritty mistakes and pitfalls that are frankly part of everybody's journey. Today, I want to talk about success and grit and how to turn our failures into success. And it's important that if you were born in the United States and you have a dream, you can turn that dream into a reality. I really believe this about our country, uh, hard work, getting yourself educated, showing up early for a job, uh, the basics that your grandparents taught you about, uh, that's the stuff that's going to really yield you uh, to reach your dreams. I remember not fitting in at my dream job at Goldman Sachs, uh, and I felt like a fraud my first time at Davos. I was super insecure. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, this feeling, I think it stays with us for a very long period of time, no matter what happens to us. This brings me to my next guest. He's a very close personal friend. He's on my advisory board here at Skybridge Capital. He's a best-selling author. He's an attorney. He spent 35 years in the U.S. Army as a former, he's a former colonel of the National Guard. He's a contributor to both the Fox Business and Fox News Channel, and he's the former United States Senator from Massachusetts. Please welcome Scott Brad at TMI. Scott, welcome to our, our podcast. Good to be on, Mooch. What a setup here. But before we get to my favorite part of your life and the part that I am super jealous about, you winning Cosmo's. America's sexiest man. Ooh, la, la. Incredible, but true. Let's let's talk about your childhood and the grit that came with it. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Well, uh, it was not a normal childhood. I I, I I would venture to say I think everyone has had kind of pieces of what I went through. But uh, mom and dad were married and divorced four times each. Uh, a lot of abuse in uh, the family from you know drunken stepfathers. Mom was on welfare for a period of time. Uh, I used to go and steal things, uh, food in particular, because I was a growing kid. Uh, I got arrested at 12 uh, for dre- uh, drinking, driving, and stealing my mom's car. I didn't get arrested for that, but I got caught uh, stealing records back then, and I went before a judge, and he saw some hope, gave me a second chance, and basically asked me how I would like to play basketball uh, in jail and uh, how my brothers and sisters would like to or not like to see that happen. And uh, made me write a 1,500-word essay, and I still remember it to this day. So that was kind of growing up. Uh, obviously, we're still close as a family, notwithstanding those challenges. Uh, as I said, I think a lot of folks have similar types of challenges, but uh, it really comes down to what you do with those opportunities. Now, now uh, all of this is in your book, which is called Against All Odds. It's my life of hardship, fast breaks, and second chances. 
Uh, it was a best-selling New York Times book a few years ago. It's now in paperback. It's still briskly selling. Yeah. Uh, and, Scott, I have to tell you, I read that book a few years ago. The authenticity that you express in that book and the realness, I think, is something that we can all relate to. And so I'm, I'm, I'm recommending all of our podcast uh, listeners, please go out and buy the book. Uh, but I want you to talk a little bit about it. Tell us about uh, your father leaving. I think you said in the book you were a year old. What was it like growing up in that environment? Well, you're right. Thank you. It's uh, number four in the New York Times. It was. It uh, did a great run. You can order it online now with all the usual you know, places, so thank you for that. Uh, yeah, Dad, uh, Mom and Dad got married early, like 19, 20 years old. Dad was in the Air Force. Mom was a ready to go to college. They met. They fell in love. You know, a year later, they had me. And then it turned out that Dad, uh, you know, wasn't ready to settle down. So they uh, they split up, and Mom moved back, uh, you know, with her parents. And, you know, we moved back to Massachusetts from New Hampshire. And it just kept, uh, you know, going on from there, kind of a, a strained relationship throughout. But uh, I think one of the reasons I was so hard-charging, very similar to what our friend the other night said is that, you know, I work so hard to be better than... Which, which friend are you referencing for the... Caitlyn Jenner. When yeah. Caitlyn Jenner, we had dinner with Caitlyn. and yep, uh, exactly. And she said uh, one of the reasons that she was so outgoing and wanted to be the best is because she was fighting demons. Well, I was fighting... I wanted to be better than my dad and everything, so that's one of the reasons I, I went out and accomplished all that we did. So, so it's interesting. What Scott's re- referencing is at the, at the SALT conference, uh, we had a Thursday night dinner. Uh, one of the guests of honor was Caitlyn Jenner, uh, who gave us some really good, honest commentary about yeah. her life struggle. Uh, born as a woman in a man's body, uh, and she decided that she was going to go for it with her athleticism. Uh, and then she eventually realized that uh, despite her journey as a man, or at least living in a man's body, uh, she needed eventually to come out and be reborn yeah. uh, in her true self. And so, but you talk about these demons, Scott. So let's let's address the demons. What kind of demons specifically do you feel were driving you? Well, it was basically the the demon of not failing, not being like my parents, making sure I didn't make the same mistakes that they made. It was critically important to learn from those mistakes. I mean, mom and dad were married and divorced four times each. I've been married in two months for thirty years. So obviously we learned that. Thanks, yeah. We learned that. We learned, uh, obviously, how to you know, work through our problems versus escaping. And then, you know, the athleticism, I always felt that, you know, you could be recognized and you could kind of be your own person but also be a leader through athletics. And so I worked just as hard as I could, you know, 24-7 to try to be the best athlete I could. And, you know, I think I accomplished that. Well, you, you mentioned in the book, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you were in 17 different homes over an 18-year period of yeah. time prior to leaving home to go to Tufts University. Right. And so talk a little bit about that, the impact you think it had on your uh, on your drive. Well, the first uh, homes we had were basically one-room apartments, and I'd have to share a room with my mom and sister. Uh, you know, just, you know, I have my own, my own bed, obviously. But, you know, tucked in the corner, I have my own little niche of stuff in, in a corner. And, uh, you know, gr- gradually mom, you know, I don't falter like many moms back in that era for making poor decisions because she was just trying to keep a roof over her head. And without a college education, she was always struggling to, to you know, take care of us and just made bad decisions. Uh, that being said, it was actually pretty, uh, pretty challenging to continue to move. I mean, we all moved within a two-town radius, so uh, it was... Uh, you know, it wasn't fun. I lived with my grandparents, lived with my cousins. You know, I was always kind of being shuffled around. So I made a point when I'm, 
you know, my mom, my wife and my kids always say, Dad, why don't you want to, like, go go out tonight? Why don't you want to? I'm like, because I love this house. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> it's like I got to hang on to it. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I got the fireplace. Yeah. I have my guitar. I got my chair, my clicker. I'm not going anywhere. The, the house is <laughs> hugging you. You're hugging the house. You, <laughs> you, you, you talk about in the book clashing with your mom, especially during your teen years. Oh, yeah. Yet, you also mentioned that you could never really move far away from her because you always felt the need to protect her. Tell us, tell us why and tell us what you were thinking. Yeah, we battled. I mean, you know, there, was, there were times in the book, you know, her discipline was a two-by-four upside my head. I mean, we, we were battled. I mean, literally, like, in each other's faces, ready to rip each other apart. It ran away many times. And yet, I was the only guy. I was, I was the man of the family. I remember when I was five or six years old, I referenced it in the book, remember you know, her hearing her yell and scream and having to come down and, and protect her against her stepfather who was literally beating the crap out of her. And I had to, I, I remember grabbing his leg and hanging on as tight as I could and biting his leg and him just pounding my head, you know, and until the, fortunately we lived in a duplex and the neighbors heard and they called the police. I mean, but not for that. I don't know what would have happened. So that, you know, having to be the big guy of the family always was from, from that early age. And um, so that's one of the reasons I went to Tufts, believe it or not, because it was 10, 12 miles from my house. So I, if I needed to, I could literally run home, physically run home. There were many times where I would either grab a car, grab a kid's bicycle, a motorcycle, you know, thumb to get home to, you know, basically be there because my mom and sister were getting, you know, beat up by some a-hole stepfather. Mm-hmm. You you, 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 you you do reference it uh, more than once in the book that your mother relied on men and she felt that she had a struggle professionally and both personally. And so this also shaped you. So tell us a little bit of how that shaped you uh, into being the father that you are today and the respect that you have for women. Well, she, when I say relied on men, basically back in the 60s, 70s, uh, you know, not having a college education, you know, she always worked and worked two or three jobs. But, you know, uh, that security, that kind of old school mentality of having a man in your life to be secure, that's, that's where she was, that's how she was brought up. I recognize it now, but uh, as a result of those mistakes, I have always said to my girls, do not ever rely on a man, <laughs> you know, for anything. You know, make sure you're always self, self-sufficient self and independent so you can make those decisions. Have that loving relationship, but always make sure that you can be self-sufficient and, and not have to be, you know, so dependent on somebody that, you know, when it when and if it's over, it's, uh, you know, you can't function. Some, some, sometimes children that are uh, in a broken home like that or have a divorce situation, they talk about the, uh, the parents playing uh, a games oh, yeah. against each other with them. Did that happen to you as no, well? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's many times I'd be wa- wondering where dad is and, you know, I'm waiting at the door and, you know, mom said, well, you know, I must not love you. He's not coming home. He's not coming to pick you up and find out later that my, my dad you know, would tell me that, oh, by the way, your mom wouldn't let me see you because, you know, I was late on the child support or I didn't call her, you know, so yeah, find out when the book came out, dad basically said, you know, I didn't know about any of this stuff, you know, I'm sorry, you know, we we actually actually had quite a reconciliation, which was nice. And uh, so when you when you go through those things, you understand that the, the, there's a lot happening behind the scenes. And, and as an attorney, I did a lot of probate, a lot of divorce, and I want I made sure that I still make sure when I'm speaking to clients, if I go down that road, that they don't use the kids as pawns. Yeah, yeah, you know, but but one of the things in my relationship with you that I've always found, you have this tremendous sense of uh, empathy, you have a tremendous sense of awareness of the pain that other people feel. 
And so if uh, someone was listening to this podcast today uh, and we're going through something similar to what you describe in your book about the tumult in your family, what kind of advice would you be giving them? Well, it really depends on their age. If you're a parent using your kids as a pawn, I'd say stop it because the kids remember. You know, I remember everything. I'm, I'm like a sponge, man. I take in everything. And my sister remembers, too. And she never met her dad, uh, which is so I was always her father figure, uh, Leanne. And my other brother and sister, my half-brother and sister, because of the relationship with my mom and their mom, and my, it, we never saw each other really till later in life. So I would say, you know, stop it and, you know, try to, you know, if you guys have issues, always put the kids first because, uh, you know, when you're older and they're, you're looking for them to take care of you, they may not be there. Fortunately, my mom has Alzheimer's and she forgets, she's forgotten everything. So I'm like her best friend and, you know, she's telling me all the time she loves me and, and she means it. You know, like I'm the guy, I'm, I'm her husband. <laughs> I'm not her son anymore, I'm her husband, you know, because I'm the guy that, and it's kind of ironic that I'm there as the figure that she needs to have that stability. And uh, which is cool, you know. Initially, I had to struggle with it, but now I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's cool, I get it. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of balanced with everything. You, you, you mentioned in the book that you, you use sports as a major, af, a, you know, as an a- outlet, if you will. And, yeah. and Caitlyn Jenner also said that she used sports as a physical force, uh, as an outlet to help her express herself. Uh, you think that the, the basketball uh, saved you in some ways? No, it definitely did. There's no doubt. I mean, I had literally a coach, uh, Brad Simpson, who's in the book, named his kid Scott. We still very, very close and friendly. Um, he was a high school coach. He was a, actually a, he was the boyfriend of the uh, teacher that I went to summer school with. And if you, there's a section in the book where I was hanging around uh, in the back of a school. I didn't have to go to summer school. I had pretty good grades. But you know, this woman kept seeing me come out of the woods to play with the kids during during their playtime. And then I go escape. And one day she cornered me. She says, "Who are you?" And I'm like, uh, "I live right there." She says, "You guys." I said, "You guys look like you're having so much fun." And she brought me into the school and, you know, asked me to look up a couple of words in the dictionary, and I couldn't do it. And then she said, yeah, why don't you see if you can come here? It was summer school, you know, where all the people who were in trouble go, and I loved it. And then her boyfriend was the basketball coach for the eighth grade, and I was then in uh, fifth or sixth grade. And they took, I was, back then I was like 5'11", and, you know, was a pretty good player, and they put me under their wings. And, you know, I would, everywhere, I'd go everywhere with basketball, play three or four leagues. Yeah, it definitely so you, saved me. You were a star in high school. Yeah, uh, you had a good career. You're going to go to Tufts because it's near, near your home, but you yeah. also played basketball toughs. Yeah, I was a captain. Had Downtown a great Scott Brown. Yeah, had a, had a, had a, still have a couple of records, I think, but it was a great experience because we had a great coach, Johnny White, and it was really a truly multicultural team. I think I was one of the only white guys on the team back then. We had two white guys, Puerto Ricans, Greeks, uh, Latinos, uh, a couple of guys from like overseas, you know, Israel. It was, it was really crazy. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, w- what other experience? I mean, I, I have a tremendous relationship with tr- Tufts, as I know you do. Uh, you think Tufts, in some ways, helped define your future success? Yeah, yeah, world? yeah. Listen, I was a, a Zeta Psi fraternity guy, and it was a, a, it was once again, it was a multifaceted. It wasn't just jocks. It was, a, it was really engineers and military and athletes and 
brainiacs and it was a nice mesh and I you know participated in the jazz and show choirs so did a lot of singing and acting and played hoop and you know was Dean's List yeah I had a, a wonderful experience I had a great mentor in John White as you as you know Johnny and uh, once again if it wasn't for them I, I would not have gone to Tufts and then wouldn't have become the man I am but yeah becoming a captain and working hard I was the guy listen I'm not the most athletically talented guy but you know, I'll, you give me a task and I'll I'll master it and then use it against you and you know score thirty. So yeah, well, John, John White loved loved having you on his team and just just as a reference point, John White went on to become the head of Lehman Brothers' right. Boston office in the private wealth management area. So I got the opportunity to not only see John White at Tufts as the basketball coach, but also work with John White right. when I was at Lehman. Yeah. So just a t- and he t- got out of Lehman before guy. any of the craziness happened. Yeah, he had, he had a yeah. good horse sense about that, too. You mentioned uh, the legendary Saul Gittleman in your book. Yeah. Uh, Saul pointed out to me once that you and I are the only two people that ever mentioned them in their books. Tell us a little bit about Saul Gittleman. And we're not even Jewish. <laughs> we're, not, we're, we're not even Jewish, and, you know, he's a big-time Democrat, and you and I are staunch Republicans. Yeah. So I said, you see that? There's yeah. some love out there in the Republican Party yeah, for yeah. you, Saul. He was a but, good good mentor. I, I took Yid Lit and uh, met a lot of my my Jewish friends who I still am fr- I just saw two of them yesterday in Boston, and, you know, we're still very, very close. And, yeah, Saul was a good guy. He kind of opened my eyes. Being from Wakefield, you know, no real minorities, no real cultural differences, all kind of, you know, you know, middle-class white, you know, town. Uh, and to go to Tufts and, you know, go and take Yid Lit, it was really kind of eye-opening. So what, what, what Scott's referencing is the introduction to Yiddish literature, which was taught in English by the legendary Saul Gittleman, and there were a lot of goys, which are non-Jews in that class. Yeah. Uh, you and I are two of them. Uh, and we're probably one of the few groups of people that are Catholic yeah. that understand the difference between a Shagitz and a Shiksa, uh, <laughs> which I often uh, tell my Jewish buddies here in New York, they get a little alarmed by that. They're like, maybe Scaramucci is a closet Jew, Yeah, yeah. Uh, which uh, the truth of the matter is I obviously am. One thing about Saul, just to carry on just for a second, is that um, being a, an athlete and always traveling, we would travel all over the country. Um, he always said, "Listen, I, I don't mind if you miss a test, but miss homework, but you know you got to get it done, and you got to. I don't. I want you to come in and literally sit there and do it with me. You know, so that that was really challenging and good for me. I needed that type of discipline. Well, legendary Saul Gittleman, 82 years old this year, still teaching yeah. at the Fletcher School, uh, teaching Yiddish literature, but also teaching about American baseball and its cultural impact. So a big shout out to Saul. Let's talk a little bit about the National Guard." your training, why you decided to go in that direction, the length of your career, which I think is legendary, and tell us how it shaped your life and helped create some of the grit. Sure. I joined after the blizzard of 78 in Massachusetts and throughout New England. You know, people died. And I recognize that these men and women soldiers then uh, helped dramatically in Massachusetts in particular. And I said, wow, man, those guys are great. I'd like to learn more. And it just turns out that my mom's old friend from who's the captain of the football team were at a Thanksgiving Day uh, football game, and he was there in his uniform. I said, you know, are you in the National Guard? Are you in the military? He says, yeah, yeah, I'm in charge of the engineers. And I said, man, you guys did a great job. And he's telling me, he says, why don't you come on down and, and check it out? And the next thing I know, I'm like, yeah, I do, <laughs> you know. And so did that, uh, started as an enlisted man, and then uh, went to college, uh, ROTC, at, while I was at Tufts and BC Law. 
and uh, became an officer, infantry, then quartermaster. They did away with the infantry division in Massachusetts, 26th, so I had to become a quartermaster, then JAG, and ultimately went to Maryland, uh, became a colonel, and then served the last four years at the Pentagon. I, airborne, qualified, you know, expert in all the firearms and I've ever fought and shot. It's so given you, It's given you a pretty... Uh, interesting perspective on the country's safety yeah, yeah. Uh, and the specter of terrorism. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the country's safety and where we stand in the war on terror. Well, we're in trouble. <laughs> we're in deep trouble. And I, I was uh, speaking with some very uh, in-tuned people in charge on the Obama administration. I don't want to throw them under the bus, but um, last night, as a matter of fact, uh, talking about this very issue. And uh, the, the failure by this administration to secure our border, to make sure our allies trust us and our foes fear us, has dramatically put us at a disadvantage when it comes to the safety and security of, of our citizens. So, Well, I mean, you, you and I are in big agreement on this. Having been to Afghanistan and Iraq and had some of these briefings, I, I, I share that concern. Uh, you were one of the first people, uh, which I would... Uh, I hope you're not... Uh, I was the first. Uh, you were the first person, okay, to endorse candidate Donald Trump. So let's talk a little bit about that. What went into that decision, why, uh, and the timing of it, which yeah. was interesting because it was right before the New Hampshire primary. Right. Talk, tell us a little about your backyard barbecues and so Yeah, forth. well, it turned out that my wife uh, wanted to learn more about the candidates, and she said, well, let's invite them to a little house party. I'm like, they're not going to come for a house party. Why don't we have a barbecue? And we live in a dead-end cul-de-sac, so we had this thing called the No BS Backyard Barbecue Series. And we, in fact, um, had 10 of the presidential candidates in each one of them. And at the end, I said I would endorse. And uh, Ted Ten of the Republican candidates. Ten of, yeah, the Republicans, yeah. Ted Cruz was I spent about $35,000 in hot dogs and beer. People literally come in my backyard. They grab a lawn chair, a hot dog, beer, and grill the candidates, literally. It was fascinating. I knew all of them anyway, but to see him, you know, under those circumstances was really important. And ultimately, at the end, I, I said I was going to endorse. And the reason that Donald Trump stood out to me is because he didn't and doesn't owe anybody anything. And I wanted somebody, having been there three years and knowing that they really don't do the people's business and they're really dysfunctional at this point, to go down there and kick some ass and take some numbers. And I felt he was the guy. When it came to the military issues, there's no one I felt, even though everybody cares about the military, I think that he has the ability to actually take care, give our men and women the tools they need to do their job, and also come home and be safe and secure and get reemployed and get you know, physically and mentally you know, squared away. And then when it comes to our border and our, our position in the world, uh, securing the border, immigration, ISIS, I was on those things long before any of these candidates. So, and he agrees with me on those issues and vice versa. And then finally, the biggest thing uh, I think economically is looking at our debt and deficit and putting people like you and others in, in the in the. Uh, in the time frame to say, you know what, we can do it better and differently. And to bring them in on the flag, you know, working, you know, 24-7 to get our debt and deficit under control. Some, somebody asked you at the SALT conference uh, about the, his lack of political experience, meaning he'd never yeah. been a governor, never been a senator. Right. Uh, and were you worried about his lack of a political experience going into that viper's nest of Washington, uh, it being a detriment to you? to him, and you responded by saying? Oh, listen, he's going to surround himself with great people. He's going to put people there to, to not only guide him, but uh, teach him and, and, and protect him, and, and uh, I think work very hard uh, for him and his uh, his beliefs. Uh, 
Is he politically correct? No. That's kind of why, what I like about him. People say, oh, he needs to act like a president. What that really is is code them saying he needs to act like a politician. Well, that's not going to happen because he's not a politician. He's a businessman who is very opinionated and wants to get things done. And that's what America needs. Well, well, you, you, you and I had a, uh, a private meeting with uh, candidate Trump about 10 days ago. And he more or less said that to us. And so my, I guess my... My question to you, having had the life experience in Washington uh, as a senator, uh, do you think that his personality and his abilities uh, as a human being, as a communicator, will resonate down there? Yeah, I think uh, you're seeing it now. You're seeing not only with the joint agreements with the RNC, but you're seeing more and more senators and others come around. You're seeing more of the so-called establishment and the never-Trump people say, well, maybe Trump. i got to wait to see who he does, puts out there in the Supreme Court. Oh, I like those choices. i got to see who he picks for vice president. Uh, i got to see who he puts in it. You know, so there, there's, there's still hope. And compared to what's going on in the Democratic Party, you know, it's a real, it's a real problem. One, one, of the, one of the things we do for our podcast listeners is we, we have an, an email box. Uh, you can find us at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com if you have questions for our guests. Uh, this is Alan in New York uh, talking about you, Scott. He says that you've described yourself as an independent thinker who's socially moderate and financially conservative. I think there's a huge group of us that fit in yeah. that category. Yeah. Uh, the same could possibly be said about Donald Trump, who you have endorsed. Uh, with the rise of Mr. Trump, do you think we are at a turning point for the Republican Party, which has been heavily influenced by the far right on social issues in recent years? Is this a turning point, Scott? You know, it's interesting you say that, and thanks for the question. I think uh, I'm a fiscal conservative, a national security hawk, and a social moderate, almost like a libertarian, just like, leave me alone. Stay out of my bedroom, leave my wife and kids alone. And I think we, we kind of take the bait all the time and, and immediately, you know, jump on the social issues and and when we should be talking about our debt, deficit, taxes, spending, jobs, national security, foreign policy, immigration. Those are the, the top, what, eight or nine, ten things. So the social things, yeah, they're, they're good people on both sides of those very important and personal issues. But to make them the, the, the primary part of a, a, a platform or a campaign, I don't necessarily agree with that. So is there a change? Yeah, you're seeing a change. And you, you, you think that the Republican Party will become more moderate on the No, it's not a moderate. It's just a more uh, respectful and tolerant and maybe just more of a libertarian. Just kind of like, you know, stay out of my just stay, just leave me alone. So, so Peggy's writing in from California. Uh, Scott, uh, Senator Brown, it was reported back in 2013 that you were possibly considering a run for the presidency in 2016. Why did you choose not to run? And if Donald Trump were to lose the general election in 2016, would you consider running in 2020? Well, first of all, um, running for president is an incredibly difficult and expensive task. And as somebody who is in the public limelight, you know, you're always getting that kind of rumor mill. You're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do this. And when you compare yourself to President Obama in this failed presidency, I think every one of us listening can say, man, I can do better than him. And... Uh, would it, would it ever happen? Yeah, more than likely, unlikely. Um, right now, my job is to make sure we put in uh, a, a Republican in the White House and keep the House and Senate. God forbid we have Chuck Schumer as a majority leader. We need to keep all three branches and see how the, Democrat, how, how the Democrats did it and how we can do it better as Republicans. So what do you think? If you had to make a prediction for the November 2016 elections? 
Uh, well, I, I think Trump's going to win. That's why I endorsed him. And I, I'm hopeful that the people will recognize, even though they're angry at Congress and angry at, uh, you know, a lot of the what, what what's happening right now, that they will keep those good senators and congressmen in place. So Donald Trump has the backstop to help him and not only, you know, maintain and push an agenda forward, but also, you know, work hard to, you know, put the genie back in the bottle. A, a, a Fox News poll recently has uh, candidate Trump about three points ahead of uh, uh, Secretary Clinton. Uh, Rasmussen had him plus five, but there are many polls that show Secretary Clinton ahead. And so if you were the strategist for – I want to first talk about candidate Trump and then go to go to Secretary Clinton. But if you were the, each each of their strategists, what would you be saying to each of the candidates? Well, she's in trouble. And, you know, they, they, they need to get rid of Bernie Sanders and, 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 you know, unify their party. They're in, I think, more disarray than we are right now. Uh, I, I don't have much uh, – I, I, don't run for Hillary because between the Benghazi, the, the emails, the perceived pay-for-play uh, pay with the – with the foundation, uh, you know, she's damaged. People don't like her. They don't trust her. And I think she's going to lose. Uh, with uh, Donald Trump, I, I've said it already, and I'll, I've said it publicly. He's got to start surrounding himself with great people, people who can help him get the job done. He's got to start doing policy speeches, and he's uh, got to start doing debate prep and get ready for the onslaught that's coming. And what, what kind of onslaught? Oh, you're already seeing it. All the super PACs out there, not only from our Republicans that were out there just hammering away, but the Democrats, all the, you know, MoveOn.org and uh, Tom Steyer and the Planned Parenthood and all the, the usual cast of characters going to go out there and just spend, you know, upwards of a billion dollars to, to distort and deceive. Just got to be ready. You, 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 you're obviously familiar with Elizabeth Warren. Oh, yeah. Uh, Andy in Boston is saying, uh, what do you think of her recent Twitter attacks against Donald Trump? And what do you think about her potential as a vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party? Well, there was a great op-ed in the Boston Herald uh, by Colin Reed, my former campaign manager, uh, regarding that very issue. Uh, she's got some real, uh, you know, credibility issues as well. You know, she's obviously lied about her heritage, took advantage of an opportunity that was not entitled uh, to her to take. Uh, claiming she was a Native American, not only at Penn, but at Harvard, and, and they won't release the records, she won't release the records, so she's got to get through that. The Boston Globe gave her a pass, but the national media won't. And the fact that uh, you look at Hillary Clinton, Elizabeth Warren is basically the anti-Clinton. She's hammering Wall Street, she's hammering, you know, all the things that Hillary Clinton has been supporting and supportive of, Elizabeth Warren has been hammering those things, and to have them now together and say, "Oh, I was just kidding. I'm I'm only kidding," it's not. Uh, it's it's just doesn't work. The optics don't work. And let me just add further: uh, when when you talk about her tweeting, I've said right from the get-go that she's going to be the attack dog for Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. And you know, the, it looked like she was drunk tweeting. It they were so outrageous at one point. Yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of specious attacks there. I think I think one of the did you see the list that Secretary Clinton speakers honorariums from 2013? Yeah, to it's 2015. You know, one conspicuous uh, absent uh, from the list was Skybridge and the Salt Conference, and and one of the reasons why we did not uh, sign her up uh, had to do with the fact that the she was possibly running again, uh, and it certainly felt to me that there was a conflict between. 
paying her those speaking engagements and then having her go out and run again. You know, uh, some of the other people on the list, whether Secretary uh, Condoleezza Rice or uh, right. Secretary Robert yeah, you Gates. Got, you got incredible they, speakers they, there. They, they basically were done with their political careers. Yep. And so do you think that that's an issue that will come up in the campaign? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that Bernie Sanders should have hit this it would be a home run. He'd be the nominee right now if he said, you got to release, release. Oh, I'll release him when everyone else releases. Well, she's not running against everyone else. She's running against Bernie Sanders. That's why people don't trust her. You can see you can see the, the fact that why she's misleading. Why do you think she's not releasing him? Because she's probably basically saying to Wall Street, oh, don't worry, you know, I don't agree with this, I don't agree with that. And everything that she's hammering away at now, uh, it, it wouldn't be appropriate. Well, uh, uh, candidate Trump is saying he's not going to release his tax returns. Do you think that they have a symmetry to those two things? No, no. I, I think he's not releasing them until his audit's complete is what I'm understanding. I wouldn't release mine either. I've released uh, tax returns 7, 10, 12 years, and I don't have any issues regarding it. But I would never release my tax returns if I was being audited. You know, they're subject to, you know, questions and ridicule and, and the whole nine yards. And the tax returns are basically there for – Obviously, and his would be exceedingly interesting, and mine were gone through with a fine-tooth comb. But look at Elizabeth Warren. She didn't release all of her records that we asked, and she gets a free pass. So it's a, it's a basically another you know Democrat playbook 101 to have him do that. He'll eventually do it. I'm not worried about it. You're, you're, you're a great American success story. If there was a listener out there that wanted to uh, create their own personal arc of success, what are some of the ingredients that you think – people need to be successful, Scott? You know, obviously, what I've always said is you got to you got to speak from your heart. You know, whenever you're running for political office or you're tackling problems, you have to do things that you believe in. Don't just do them to check a box and build a resume. So that's the first thing. Uh, you're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. I've done it. I'll continue to do it. But you have to learn and grow from those mistakes. And you got to surround yourself with really good people, you know, people that you know and trust and you can go and have a beer and a hot dog with and relax with. So... That, those are the kind so of So authenticity things. is the number one yeah, thing. Be yeah, true be to yourself. yourself. Yeah, be yourself. You're, you're, you know, in 1980, Ronald Reagan had a slogan in his campaign, Make America Great Again. Uh, it's 2016. Donald Trump has a slogan in his campaign. And you and I have worn those hats before, <laughs> Make America Great Again. Do you think America has the capacity to be great again? Of course. We are the greatest country in the world. Uh, we have the wonderful people who are a melting pot, but we're in trouble right now. I'm looking at a precipice where we're in, in 19 plus trillion dollar national debt. Our allies don't trust us. Our foes don't fear us. Our military is, is, is overworked and weak right now. Um, we, we just have so much, no, a lack of regulatory and tax certainty. People don't know what's next. Uh, the whole apology tour by this administration and, and the lack of, of concise, uh, direct uh, decision-making, as Panetta says, uh, you know, half-steps and missteps has led us to where we are today. Be- before I let you go, I got to bring up this Cosmopolitan magazine, You're yeah. America's Sexiest Man. 1982. Is so, it still on your screensaver? So, so tell, tell us about it. Let, let, let me tell you something. <laughs> it's not on my screensaver, but I saw it on my producer Susan Krakauer's screensaver. Oh, nice. okay? And I know she's turning bright red right now as I'm speaking. <laughs> uh, but go ahead. Tell us about that. Yeah, listen. I know it, it opened a lot of doors for you, so give us a story. <laughs> Yes, it did. Uh, it was in 1982. It was a it was a centerfold contest. Burt Reynolds, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Jim Brown, David Hasselhoff, and uh, who was the last one? Uh, uh, 
John Davidson, I think, if I didn't say that. But uh, there's basically five people, and I was the only, like, regular guy that wasn't a celebrity. I was in law school, and my sister sent in a picture, and just shirt and tie, and then one in a bathing suit. And I remember going to Helen Gurley Brown's office. They, they, I got a call, and they, they said, hey, you've been selected Helen as Helen Gurley Brown, the legendary yeah. editor-in-chief yes. of Cosmopolitan, yeah. changed the whole feminist movement. Yeah. Keep going. So, the, you know, I, I, I got a call from them. and said, hey, you've been selected. I'm like, yeah, right. I hung up. And they, said, they called back. and said, yeah, you You've been selected as I had no idea what they were talking about. So they said, I said, send me a plane ticket. I'll be there in a couple of days. I'm in finals right now. I got there, went into Helen Gurley Brown's office, and she looked at me and she says, Well, you're our guy. I said, Well, you've never seen me like without, you know, just with a smile on, you know, <laughs> you know, obviously you don't see it's Cosmo. You didn't see, you know, obviously my private parts. Um, but she said, well, you're, you're the guy. You're, you're, you're in the military. You're in law school. You're a nice guy. You're not going to embarrass us. So that was I got. That's how I got did it. Did you get in the cover? Did you, did you get in a centerfold? Yeah. Cosmo. Yeah, yeah. What about Times Square? Did you have a billboard? Yeah, in Times I, Square? I had a billboard in Times Square. I was a Jordash guy as well, so I did a bunch of commercials. Yeah, I'm a SAG and after guy. You know, yeah, I had some fun. You know, Studio Fifty Four. You know, Red Parrot, Gail, Underground. Gail you Brown, it. your wife says you still talk about this in your sleep. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she wishes. <laughs> Wish I still looked like that between the gray hair and the. Glasses now. It's a big, big shout out to you, Gail. You know I love you. Okay, so let me ask you this one last question, then we're gonna let you go. All right. Luck in life. You think there's a lot of luck in life? I think you make your own luck. I, I think by making certain decisions, you can direct the things that ultimately happen to you. If you're just sitting on your couch and you're waiting to, you know, score 30 points, it's not going to happen. You want to go win a triathlon, you sit on your couch, you're not going to do it. But if you go and actually train and win that triathlon, then as a result of that, you're going to get sponsors. So is that lucky or is that hard work? So Pre- I don't know. Preparation. Preparation, uh, determination, luck, luck focus. Is of design. Yep, yep. And if folks want to reach me, they can go at Sen, at Sen, S-E-N, Scott Brown, yep. on Twitter, like me on Facebook, and, uh, you know, we'll have some fun. Well, and, and I want to reference the book again, uh, by Scott Brown, Against All Odds, My Life of Hardship, Fast Breaks, and Second Chances, best-selling book. It's a terrific read, and you want to talk about an authentic voice. Scott, I've known you for a long time. I know you wrote this book. I can yeah. feel yeah, you me. in this book. And for uh, the Susan Crackhours <laughs> out there, if you want to see Scott Brown in the flesh, yes, 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 uh, yes, yes, right, yes. right then and there in the Cosmo. Still actually look like that. You, you, you can cut to the middle <laughs> of the book. There's some really good photos. Uh, I want to thank Senator Brown. I also want to reference that Twitter feed again. It's at Sen, S-E-N, Scott Brown. Please follow him on Twitter. Uh, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. Until next time, remember to email us at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Scaramucci. And uh, that's all from us now here at TMI. Now, didn't Field and Stream actually contact you to do a centerfold? Yeah, they, not, not them, but the, the Bronx Zoo. They wanted, oh, AARP. Me, they wanted me in the chimpanzee. AARP. They, did, want, right? they wanted me in the chimpanzee yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, section of the Bronx Zoo. All right, Zoo. man. Have fun. All right. God Thank bless. You.